Welcome to Analyze Asia, the podcast dedicated to dissect the pulse of business, technology, and media in Asia. The show is sponsored by IdealWorkspace.com, which promotes a healthier way of working through their adjustable standing desks. Check out their latest smart adjustable standing desk at aspirus.co, A-S-P-I-R-U-S dot C-O, and linkshus.com, where you can sell your products everywhere. Hi, Charles. Hello, Bernard. How are you doing? I am well. And what have you been up to lately? Uh, just trying to keep uh, track of all the new developments in IoT across the region. You're coming back again. So we are talking to Charles Anderson, Vice President, Head of Mobility and Internet of Things for Asia-Pacific IDC. So Charles, I've been following a lot on IoT and mobility, just like you do. And there's a lot of stuff happening from CES 2016. So maybe you can tell us what happened. Well, I'll just give a couple of quick highlights, the things that I found interesting, which probably aren't what a lot of people would be interested in. But what I thought was very interesting was how the market in general reacted to some of the new product launches that came out. And whether it was a smartwatch from some of the different vendors, it was almost the Me Too offerings. And I don't think the market's ready for that. And I think, and the wearable space in particular, and smartwatches, I think what you're seeing is now the consumer saying that, I'm not really willing to keep spending on this until I start seeing some more utility out of it. So they're waiting for that application ecosystem to start going. And, you know, I've asked you about this as well. I love asking people, what applications do you do on that device besides notifications? And you don't hear too much. The other thing I think is quite interesting that came out of it is I think some of the bigger vendors are starting to understand the importance of the ecosystem. I've always been quite cynical about smart fridges. I think it's great that my fridge can tell me I'm out of milk, but then I'm still out of milk. What I want them to do is start linking in access to online grocery stores. And Samsung's doing that now with their smart fridge that came out. So I found that quite interesting. And I think the final thing is like what, what we've seen, especially in the last, I would say, month, is a lot of the big ICT vendors. I and mean, that's across hardware manufacturers, some software guys as well, getting very active in the IoT space. And we see them coming out asking questions, giving briefings. But you also see it quite a bit on the recruitment scene right now where a lot of people are getting very active and trying to find those resources that not only understand the technology behind the Internet of Things, but also how it can be applied against specific consumer, government, or enterprise use cases. I have a quick question. So Ooh. does car included under mobility and IoT for you? Connected cars would be underneath the Internet of Things for us, yes. Yes. So what about cars? I mean, in the CES this year, there's a lot of showcase of cars. I think GM invested $500 million in Lyft to build mm-hmm. a fleet of self-driving cars. Where do you see that technology go for cars as well? Well, the car side is actually fascinating because if you go back a few years, the assumptions we went under was that there was a smaller amount, maybe 100 or 200 sensors in a car. But I saw a stat recently that the most recent Audi A8, depending on which model you get, is going to have 6,000 to 8,000 different sensors on it. So even though it's not driving itself yet, these things are computers, basically. It's constantly sending back information from a number of different connectivity points. So I see that really evolving. Yeah, ideally, you want to get it down to that point where we're going to have driverless cars. But just because we can do it technically doesn't mean we're ready for something like that socially. And trust me, the first time I'm going down the road and I see someone next or the car next to me with nobody driving it, it's going to freak me out a little bit. And I'm going to be trying to grab my phone and, you know, taking a picture of it and I'll probably end up crashing. Okay, so I think the car is going to get a lot of attention in the next couple of months. But coming back to the IoT system. So now tell me, I think there's a lot of changes in the Internet of Things. But what is the definition of Internet of Things in a 2016 context? Well, I think a lot of the things that underpin the Internet of Things, like machine-to-machine technology, has been around for 25, 30 years already. 
And that's where you're just leveraging a device or a module to capture an event or some information, transmitting it to an app, and then you know we can do something with it. What happens with IoT, what's really different is that you have two different things that actually talk to each other, and it doesn't require human interaction. And the way I like to explain it is, uh, if you look at shipping containers, for years now they've been sticking devices inside of a shipping container to capture the temperature, humidity, and carbon dioxide levels inside of these containers. But once they get the information, they basically send somebody out to go find container 4,642 out of 10,000 and then open a vent. So now what they're starting to do is automating those vents as well. And then they build, you know, they use analytics on that and sort of say, if the temperature reaches this certain level, we automatically open it. So what's interesting about IoT is it starts connecting these things, but it eliminates the inefficient component, which is us as humans. And then that will also have impact to things like transshipping and even like trying to grow the fish within the pots. I mean, yeah. putting into these trucks and then send it across the ships and then that's try to monitor. Now that's that. when you start getting more into the internet of everything. And that's when, in that, in that same scenario, say you're shipping a potato from California to Hong Kong then what you're actually doing is working on that farm and connecting all the sensors in the farm to the trucks that take it to the train, to the train that takes it to the port, port onto the ship, and the ship into the, you know, the port in Hong Kong to the retailers all the way through. It's connecting up that entire ecosystem, and we're pretty far away from that. How do you actually chart out this Internet of Things ecosystem into a framework that's such that businesses and government can actually use it to navigate then? Well, we also use it for vendors as well, because a lot of vendors have components of the ecosystem, but... Their, their technology itself isn't the solution. So the way we break it down is we say there's a module or a device that's going to connect over some type of a network, and that could be a fixed or a wireless network, through a platform, which is then going to store that information on the servers, and then to an app. And then across all of that, you have data going back and forth. So it's that analytics component that actually generates a lot of the intelligence. That then gets wrapped in a layer of security, and then you need professional services to sort of wrap it all together. And then the machine learning actually also read the data and analyze the data to do predictive modeling, right? Yep. So any examples of smart enterprise? Well, smart enterprise has been around for a long time. You know, we've been using things like fixed IP phones and you know, connecting up our printers for a while, or even the way that we were connecting ATMs in the old world. You know, that was leveraging a lot of technology. What's happening now is you're starting to see certain verticals leverage it a lot more. Uh, healthcare is the one I'm actually the most excited about because I think it's going to offer the most value. I mean, it's not only about making the buildings in healthcare smart, it's about connecting up the equipment, doing asset management on it so you know where the pieces of equipment are. And just think about a scenario where, say, I'm having a heart attack. They have limited number of those machines that zap you. I'd like them to know exactly where it is so they can find it right away instead of running around looking. And that's a big thing inside of hospitals. The average nurse in the U.S. spends one hour of every eight-hour shift looking for equipment. So just leveraging things like that, basic solutions around asset management will help out. But where there's really a lot of opportunities now, you'll start seeing it, I think, in Asia especially, is going to be more in the retail space. We've already led the way on things like smart vending out of Japan. But what you're going to start seeing is a lot of mobile point-of-sales terminals come in to help digitize the currency. And you'll see some more interesting uses out of digital signage, hopefully. But that still takes a while because digital signage, the technology is there. What people don't understand is what you need to do organizationally. And how do you develop and maintain dynamic content that's actually attractive? I recently went to the 7-Eleven and instead of paying cash to the cashier, the cashier asked me to put it onto a device. And this device actually reads what currency I put in and actually gave me the exact change. 
I don't know. But you know, sometimes it, it, it may be so easy to actually pass the cash to the person to take it out. I think the time to, for me to get the cash is actually more. So what I'm asking is, are we actually sometimes solving a two cents problem with a 499 solution? Uh, <laughs> trust me, if we could sort out digital currencies around the world and uh, the and banking sector, that would be fantastic. But the problem is it's so unbelievably frank, fragmented. The challenge you have with this is all the operators want to have their own end banking platform. And then you've got banks, they all want to have their own as well and use it as a differentiator. And now what you have is a lot of these you know, digital transforming companies uh, coming in there, like the, the Facebooks of the world, creating their own currencies as well. Everyone wants to have it because they want to own the customer and they want to own the whole ecosystem. And the problem is, I mean, I don't know how many different digital wallets that you carry right now, but I've got quite a few and plus a bunch of NFC ones as well. And it's confusing sometimes because I'm just afraid I'm going to like walk by and all of them are going to go off and I'm going to paying 10 times what I should. But this is where there's been some, like I would have assumed, especially in Singapore, that the government would have actually mandated this, that we all need to go down to a common platform. You're starting to see a couple interesting initiatives around that, one in Taiwan, one in New Zealand, where they're actually getting them to work together. That's what needs to happen, but it needs to be mandated by the government. This is something that enterprises won't do on their own without being pushed. Before I get to the major topic of the day, I wanted to just ask you, in Asia Pacific, what are the top industries for IoT? It's actually quite interesting. It's a lot of the things that you would think. I mean, governments, of course, because of the big smart city initiatives, utilities, and then manufacturing. Those are the top three. But the reason why those people are spending it, it isn't that they're doing these really fancy solutions. They're doing things that drive cost efficiencies in the organization. They're tagging assets. They're doing predictive analytics. You know, they're finding ways to, you know, leverage IoT solutions for security, you know, and then maybe eventually starting to get into like smart building solutions. But all these things, the business case isn't to generate revenues. It's cost savings that they're trying to drive. So what we actually see, it goes down a ways until you get to the retail sector about number five or so. And that's where they're actually going to use it to change the customer experience. But the top spend, the use cases that drive the most money in Asia are all about saving money, not about generating new revenues. You know, I was in an IoT talk yesterday and I heard this very interesting insight that actually the winner of using technology is typically to actually enhance the experience by 10x instead of trying to do cost savings. I have to get your opinion. Do you think that that's the case? I see where the business cases are getting signed off and I see what solutions are being delivered. It's much easier, especially now, especially when you look at something like a smart city. People don't have budgets. I mean, unfortunately, I haven't run into many cities that are writing blank checks related to this. Otherwise, I'd be volunteering my services. But in reality, it's all business case driven. So these things, a lot of these solutions, especially things around smart buildings and energy management solutions, they drive very fast ROIs. And in some cases, we've seen with one company out of London that links up with the existing building management systems, they're giving them an ROI back within three months. So you use that money, those cost savings, and then you can reinvest in some of the other more experimental or innovative solutions that might drive revenues in the future. The productivity increase 10 times, that's, that's going to be a bit of a stretch. It depends on the industry, but there is certain cases where you will see that. Without going into too much detail, some of the stuff they're looking at in airplane manufacturing, leveraging smart tool platforms and smart classes, those will deliver that kind of 10 times productivity number, but that's still going to be a ways out before it's mainstream. Which comes to the main topic of the day, smart cities in Asia. I know you have been talking a lot about this, so I wanted to get you on to just discuss this. So the first thing I wanted to ask you is, what is a smart city? I think what we found out in the last year is that every city in Asia is a smart city. And I think they have to be because otherwise they're a dumb city by default. So everyone wants to say that they're a smart city. But in reality, what, what they're trying to accomplish you know, is a few major things. They'll always talk about what we're trying to generate is sustainable economic and environmental developments, improve the quality of life for their citizens, exchanging information and sharing information to the right time, to the right stakeholders. 
But in reality, what they're really spending a lot on right now, it's about cost and infrastructure efficiency. So those are the things they want to deliver. But the first three are much more about in the future. Today, where they're driving it a lot, it's about that cost and infrastructure efficiency. So how do the ideal smart city should look like from what you envisage? How should it look in the future or how yeah. should it look today? How should it look in the, maybe the next one to three years or maybe then after that next five years? Okay, well, I think in the near term, what I'd like to see is a lot more very large program management offices going into place because smart cities can be an absolute nightmare. You have to remember that a smart city is actually a number of different businesses underneath it. You know, you're going to have your public transport business, you're going to have citizen services, you'll have homeland security type services. These are all businesses that are at a different stage of maturity level when it comes to the Internet of Things. So it's hard to manage that. And the thing is, what you want to do with this is drive common platforms, which drives cost efficiency instead of everybody going out and buying their own. But to do that, you really need to get some people who run it centrally. And I think Singapore's got a great chance to be able to do that. But it's difficult even for Singapore because, I mean, if you look at you know, the, the transport organization here with LTA, I mean, they, they're pretty far advanced in a lot of their solutions already. So you can't come in saying, OK, we're going to go do this platform because they've made decisions five, seven years ago related to a lot of these things. So I think right now what you'll end up seeing is people building out and trying to get their head around it. They'll try to start driving those initial solutions that save money because I don't know many cities in the region that can actually afford to do a lot of these solutions they're talking about. And what it's going to evolve to over the next few years is you'll see some more interesting services coming out. But the key thing that's going to be different and what's going to make them more successful is governments that take very good care of managing the communication back to the citizens. And there's one city in particular. So I've, I've had a few meetings with the CIO in Taipei. And he understands the challenges around this because he wants to be able to go out there and explain to the people in the 12 different districts that this is what we're doing and this is the project we're, progress we're making. Because if you don't explain that progress back, it's only a matter of time before the citizens are going to go, wait a minute, you've been talking about this, you know, what's actually happening now? I think you'll start seeing some more interesting things come out. It'll be around driving more efficient, you know, use of transportation. What I think some of the next ones you'll see is more interesting uses of digital signage to communicate with the citizens or to provide public safety information as well. So is Smart City more about infrastructure building or applications for interactions between the online and the offline world, for example, on-demand services? I think right now it's a lot about infrastructure. Because the challenge with the Internet of Things is if you, you want to be able to experiment and roll out a lot of these things, you need to have your third platform technologies in place. You need to have a good mobility strategy, cloud, big data, and social. And we know from looking across the region, now, cities don't really have that. Governments aren't always at the forefront. And the ones that are tend to be the uh, healthcare industry or financial services. So even if they want to be very innovative and advanced, sometimes their core infrastructure isn't ready yet. So there's going to be a period of time where they have to invest and get that up to a certain level. In terms of that, you will need the facilities and the assets, right? What kind of facilities and assets for a smart city to manifest? Let's take some examples, right? Smart buildings. What must you have in order for it to manifest? Smart buildings is actually the, a pretty easy one to do right now. A lot of the bigger vendors in the space that actually run the smart building platforms, they have solutions that will help you reduce your energy costs. But what we're seeing is a couple very innovative and disruptive startups coming up out of the UK. And what they're doing is linking into those systems providing a very good user interface, and this is how they can turn it around very quickly. They can look at all your infrastructure, they can tell you what's running inefficiently, and make recommendations about you can basically adjust your workloads and save X amount of dollars to actually improve your cost structure. So that gets quite exciting, and that's leveraging the stuff that's already out there today. But I think it's going to be a while before we're ready to really get into you know, transforming the whole city. It's going to be very incremental. It's going to take a long time. 
And to be honest, you know, if we come back and have a call in 10 years, I'm sure there'll still be a lot of room to go and room to grow for these cities. How about digital signages then? I mean, you mentioned it just now, right? More, would it be just only government communications or, you know, in the private sector, we could use it for advertising. We could even use it for transactions. I mean, people are using, already using walls in Japan and Korea to do QR codes scanning. How would it look like in a smart city? Actually, digital signage is a very interesting one to look at because it really highlights the challenge about you might have a technology that works, but unless you understand the organizational impact and what it's going to do to your business process, it's going to fail. And think about it. When's the last time you, know, you can remember going by a digital signage and it actually caused you to initiate an action, whether it's making you follow up and look at a product or come into a store or something like that? Very few people actually do dynamic content. They buy digital signage, they dump down some content, and it goes in a loop for a whole month. What you need to start doing is, I mean, I'll give you a great example. Benetton, and, which is the um, Italian retailer, at their flagship store in Milan, they replaced their windows in the store with digital signage. And what they've done is they use different content throughout the day. So they know in the morning before the store opens, they want to entice you to come back. When it's during the opening hours, they want to entice you to come in because they are open then. And then in the evening when it's closed, They've made it a really interactive experience with cameras where you can come over there and have your picture taken and it blows it up on this huge wall. And you might think, well, what's the importance of that? If you do that and you're on this 20-foot wall um, of screens in the the main piazza in Milan, you're going to take a picture of it and you're going to throw it all over social media. They get a lot of marketing value out of doing this as well. But they understood that if they just put in a set of content and looped it over and over again, it doesn't have the desired effect. And then what about things like asset management, but I think in utilities? Uh, there's a lot of room for you know, improving the efficiency within the utility sector, and they've been on the forefront of it as well. But asset management in every industry has been around for quite a while. And what's happened is the cost structure of some of the components in that ecosystem are going down, with sensors in particular. So it's making it cost in. So it's much easier to get a business case approved. This will be a very interesting space to watch over the next year or so, because what you're going to see in Asia is a launch of quite a few low bandwidth networks. So you're going to see things like LoRa or Sigfox being deployed in countries. And that the cost structure with that, if you look at a typical M2M SIM, it might cost you $20, $24 a year for that SIM. Now what you're talking about is $1. So the whole cost model changes when you start looking at these technologies. And I think that will drive a lot in that asset management space. It only sends limited amount of data back and forth, but for tagging and tracking an asset, it's a great type of solution. I could see that actually even happening in my own area, which is logistics. Mm-hmm. So I think that there will be a lot to look at. So here's the part that I'm a little bit wondering. A lot of cities in Asia, from China to Singapore, are now talking up becoming smart cities. I mean, what are the major observations you have seen? This is one of my favorite topics to talk about because I always talk about this gap. And what happens with a smart city is, like step one is, the government officials get together with some of the leading vendors and they basically do a photo shoot saying, or a photo op, and we say, we're now going to create a smart city. And then they do a press release, and it says, by the 2025, we're going to create X, Y, and Z. So that's steps one and two. And then steps three to infinity are the hundreds or thousands of different projects that are going to get you there. And this is that big gap. We don't understand how we're going to fund it. We don't have the resources to deliver it. And think about this. In, in China, in the, you know, in the tier one, tier two cities, there's already 200 smart cities announced. If they were all to go live next year, who's going to deliver them? We don't have the skilled resources to actually go out there and do it. And I know they're already having some challenges in doing smart towns, which is much smaller than a smart city, to just get skilled resources to deliver these things. So I think sometimes we're getting a little bit ahead of it. 
we're not ready for a lot of this yet. Also, the one thing I'd say is the technology is actually there. It's more those skills level and actually understanding how to apply it against a business problem. So we're missing this, someone who can sit in between the technology and the business, the line of business, and help them sort of identify how you can leverage these technologies to transform a business process. But the issue is that, should it be government-driven or should it be private sector-driven? Or it has to be, you know, it takes both hands to clap. It has to be both. So what you see is the future, smart cities and smart businesses are basically linked. They need each other. So what a lot of these cities are going to be competing for is getting MNCs or Asian-based or worldwide MNCs coming out here and investing in their cities again, putting in big office buildings and bringing in workers. They want that foreign direct investment. So they're going to try and make themselves the most attractive. So it's a really, it's a competition thing. So they need to work together to deliver that. And they all have the same thing. Everyone wants to grow, generate revenues, improve the experience, generate operational efficiency. But the problem is they're also competing for the exact same resources. And like I said, there's a massive skill shortage and they're competing for talent right now. So And let's face it, most of the time, the public sector or private sector can pay much better. So here lies the problem, right? Given that, like, for example, something as simple as IoT, you have so many different standards, so many different platforms. Do you see consolidation or governments taking sides to choose which platforms they want to do at some point? I think I'm one of the very few people who isn't as worried about the platform discussion. I, I think smart cities should leverage platforms and they should try and leverage them across as many different businesses within that smart city as possible just to drive cost efficiencies. But in reality, it's not like one platform is going to win out. What we're going to look for is those platform of platforms. Those people who then aggregate the information from the different platforms into one platform above it. And the way to explain something like that is, I mean, think about, think about a hotel. In that hotel, you might have a building management system. You're going to have security cameras. You might want to control the lighting in the walkways. You might want to control the escalators. All those things probably have different platforms that control them. But what you're seeing now is someone who can come across the top, they open up the APIs, and they can combine all that information from those different platforms into a single platform. So that's how I think it's going to evolve. But there's a big game. Everyone wants to have the dominant platform. No one's ever going to win. It's already too fragmented, and there's big players on each side of these. And I think that probably the winner will be leveraging on all these disparate platforms at some point, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, this is how technology usually evolves. Coming back, I mean, in small cities, how do the stakeholders usually operate? I mean, there is the government, there is the customers or citizens, there is businesses, and there's also nonprofits. So how does these stakeholders each stack themselves within this smart cities framework. It's challenging. You're also missing out the vendor community there as well because the vendors, all the different components of the vendor ecosystem are going after it too. What you you normally have is, that's why I'm saying it's very important to have a centralized project management office, PMO, to sort of manage this whole process because people are going to be going down different tracks. You need someone to sort of guide it and set the tone. Very few cities have a detailed smart city strategy because it's just, it's so comprehensive. I mean, it's everything about your operations, your assets, you know, for the future. And it's just, it's difficult to write out a strategy for everyone. And think about it. Even if you wanted to look at something as simple as smart, smart parking, there's so many different things from going to cost savings to where you can move it to revenue generating to the customer experience. You could write a whole long strategy just for that one little component. And there's hundreds of these different components within the city. So would it be better to do it project-based, like, like trying to improve something with smart rather than trying to do everything all at one go? Oh, definitely. That incremental approach. And that's why I mean, what I always talk to, when I talk to some governments around the region, I stress focus on things that drive savings. 
hopefully you can then take that savings and leverage it to like fund the next set of initiatives. But you know, I know I know Singapore just announced they're going to put in a very large fund to support smart city initiatives, and I think that's fantastic. But not every city is in that situation where they can actually do this. So it's got to be a partnership, and you need those stakeholders to work together. You know, sometimes it might be the businesses and enterprises coming together and picking up the vendors saying, let's try and build this because it's going to make something better for all of us. No, I was just to say, I also think that you'll see like some of these initiatives within an industry where you'll get people who compete in the same area saying, let's try and set some standards because everybody will benefit and it'll drive costs out of the entire industry. So I think that will help drive it as well. Here's the problem. I hear everyone talking about smart cities, smart nations, and it's all about strategy so far. Have you seen real concrete initiatives that are actually laid out in the cities or in the nations? There's actually quite a bit of it, believe it or not. It's just stuff that you probably don't think about or you don't hear. I mean, I mean, you got to remember in any streets you're going to have, you know, there'll be like the, the Land Transport Authority could be doing your sidewalks and the lighting could have the buildings that you're living in are already going to be connected up. There's going to be different types of like if you look at the MRT here. Think about how many different ways they're going to be leveraging IoT solutions. They're going to have the security solutions in there. All the different pieces of equipment are going to be tagged already. They'll be leveraging predictive analytics to understand when the machinery needs to be maintained or repaired. So a lot of them go on, but it's just behind the scenes right now. What we're not seeing as much are those solutions that are driving citizen services that are highly interactive with the citizens. So it'll take a while, but you know, even in some of, if you even look at Europe right now, I think the smart cities in Europe are overhyped. And I won't pick on any city in particular, just in case they want to invite me there at some point. But a lot of them talk about how smart they are and. But you go there and you realize they've made one smart boulevard or one block instead of actually doing the whole entire city. And they might do things with the streetlights and they might be leveraging digital signage. But it's not widely deployed yet. What they're really good at is marketing the concept that they're delivering instead of actually what they've delivered to date. So everywhere you go, it's still relatively early days. What they actually do is basically to lay out one street or lay out one boulevard, for example. So any interesting examples that you've seen, I mean, other than traffic lights, uh, no, street lights and etc.? Anything or transportation, any other things that you have seen that is actually sort of illuminating that if you scale this, this will be the smart city. Like I said, I, I ran into one vendor who's out of London that's just really disrupting the smart building space. And what they're able to do is, I mean, by delivering an ROI in about three months, it's it really gets people to sign up for it. Also, the installation times they can do are anywhere from about 20 minutes to an hour. So in an afternoon, you can basically meet the guys, have it set up, and you're already starting to save money. I mean, that's disruptive and that's quite exciting. So what are the things we need to watch out about smart cities in Asia for 2016 then? Oh, geez, where do you start on this one? I think we're at risk of overhyping smart cities right now. So I want to see the city or the different cities become much more active about communicating to the citizens about what they're doing to transform the cities. How it's going to give us some plans, say this is what you can expect in 2016, 2017. Because that communication is so important because... Otherwise, we're just going to say, well, I, you told all these things. There's all this hype and what's happening now. So it's really a matter of how do you actually communicate it. And it's a great use for digital signage. Would you see policy like cybersecurity were to come in play as well? They are also involved in this whole smart city because you, well, smart city is also li liable for hacking as well, right? And people would do, for example, they talk about refrigerators being hacked. So do you, would you see the cybersecurity component also may even derail or maybe slow down the progress of smart cities? The security aspect is interesting because if you go across, you know, we survey companies quite often around this mm -hmm. and the number one concern around IoT is security. But I have a bit of a cynical view on this. Whenever a customer tells me that they're concerned about security and that's why they haven't done anything with IoT, I always ask them what endpoints or what data transmission or applications 
or data are you actually concerned about? And they don't have an answer. And I think what happens is in the very early stages of adoption of a, of a technology or solution like this, you don't tend to have the budget or the resources. So you've got one guy who's asked, being asked to look at it as a second job, basically, but he doesn't get paid anything extra. If he says security is a concern, it's very easy for him to sort of make it sound like he's looking at it from the right perspective. In reality, I don't think a lot of them have actually looked through it to understand where the security risks are. And even when there is security risk, there's a lot of things we can do to mitigate those risks. So I think a lot of the security one is overhyped. Now, as I say, what I'm more concerned about is the number two and number three concerns are about a lack of understanding over the CapEx and then the OpEx. So if we don't understand what it's going to cost today and in the future to support these solutions, how do we generate the business case? So I think this actually holds up the industry more than anything right now because a lot of business cases are just sitting there and the vendors can't really help out. The people don't have the expertise. They're not bringing in all the stakeholders who can then at least offset it with the benefit side. So a lot of people aren't developing the business cases yet. So any last words for on smart cities before I ask you the last question? On smart cities, I, I do question them a lot, but I am very supportive. I think I, I work with a lot of the governments around the region. I'm excited what they're trying to accomplish. What I'm trying to make sure they do is plan out this accordingly and they understand how complicated it's going to be. So plan out that PMO, bring in those resources to help herd all the different cats in and try and take it forward. Okay, and I'm pretty sure another one year time, I'm going to probably ask you what has happened to all these smart city initiatives. And I hope I have an answer. <laughs> okay, well, it's always good to have you on, Charles. So how do my audience find you? Oh, they can find me. Uh, I'm on LinkedIn under Charles Reed Anderson. Um, and they can find me on Twitter at CRA Singapore. And you tweet out a lot of very interesting stuff on IoT and mobility most of the time. So I urge everyone to follow you. So you can find me at blongcw or at bernardleong.com. Subscribe to us at iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and ACAST. Or you can tweet to us at AnalyzeAsia, A-N-A-L-Y-S-E, Asia. So Charles, once again, thank you for coming on the show. Always a pleasure. Thanks a lot.